0: From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. In this episode of The Surgery Set, we welcome Dr. Kareem Foyles, Dr. Voiles is a psychologist and the scientific director of the Wisconsin Surgical Outcomes Research, or WISER, program here at the University of Wisconsin. She got her master's and PhD at the University of Kentucky and comes to us after a long uh, period of time very successful at Duke. One area of her research interest is in developing and evaluating behavioral interventions for primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. She works a lot in the area of obesity and she's been the principal investigator of several randomized controlled trials to evaluate the efficacy of a weight loss maintenance intervention. Dr. Boyles speaks to us about her findings about weight loss, but she'll also be discussing them at the 2018 UW Obesity Management Summit that's going to be held May 18th and 19th at beautiful Monona Terrace in scenic downtown Madison. Registration is open online. Dr. Boyles, welcome to the surgery set. And you gave a, a great grand rounds today on maintenance of weight loss Um and how that's sort of the holy grail of of weight loss research. Can you tell me a little bit just how you got interested in this particular field?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, When I was doing a fellowship in health services research, I was actually interested in medication adherence. And I had done some focus groups with patients and with their spouses to kind of ask them about how they manage their hypertension. And people didn't talk a lot about the medications. They talked a lot about the lifestyle behaviors. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Um, And so I, you know, at the same time, I had a colleague in my department with me who focused on studying low-carb and low-fat diets. His name's Willie Yancey. He's an internist. And so I just started talking with him and got him to collaborate on my first trial, which was a trial looking at spousal support for lifestyle change to support um, lipid lowering in Mm. veterans. And so... It just became obvious to me that patients really struggled with the lifestyle changes and so that just kind of got me hooked Um, and so we started working on sort of the weight loss interventions and then i thought well we can get people to lose weight but how do we get them to maintain the weight loss and so then i started investigating that further and that kind of led to the subsequent trial
0: and that's been like you say it's like the holy grail people lose Weight. We know we have a million ways to lose weight and no great effective strategies to keep the weight off. I know there was a a paper that came out that got a lot of sort of popular press about looking at biggest loser participants. Mm -hmm. So, this incredibly selected group of people who've been under a microscope. Yes. And even there, they can't rely, they don't all reliably, you know, keep the weight off. That's right. Even if you're a reality show participant on camera with trainers and everything.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that's interesting to me is, I mean, when we're in a weight loss intervention, we're being monitored kind of externally, like we've got, you know, other group participants egging us on, we've got the interventionists, there's a lot of external accountability. And I think when we move into the maintenance phase, we're often alone and all of that goes away. And so I think we really need to think about training patients to have the skills to do this on their own and find a replacement for those different things. And so some of the th- things I talk about in, I have a conceptual model that distinguishes initiation and maintenance. And one of the things I talk about, for example, is the social support component. Social po- support is so important, but when when you're engaging in weight loss, you've got that around you. You've got people who are also trying to lose weight. You've got the interventionist saying, good job. and you know all those things, and then when you go off on your own, you don't have that and so i 'm trying to get people to think about identifying someone in their network, for example, who can serve that role and still kind of keep that going also, when you think about a weight loss intervention um, there's the accountability for your your outcomes in terms of you might be asked to track your diet, and then the dietitian looks it over and gives you feedback, or you know you weigh in each time, and so somebody else is prompting you to kind of monitor your behavior. Um, And again, when you go into maintenance, you have to do that on your own. So we are really trying to explicitly get patients to think about, like, you have to do this on your own now. This is going to be a shift for you. Um, And actually, the way I got this idea, interestingly, was from talking many years ago to a good friend of mine who's a therapist.
0: Hmm.
1: And I said, you know, people go to therapy And you can't go to therapy for the rest of your life. So what do you do with clients when you're, you know, they're ending their year or whatever it is, and they're preparing off to go in the real world and not come to you anywhere? Like, what do you do in that situation? And she talked to me about that, about preparing them to be independent. Mm. And then that kind of, like, was a light bulb to me. And I said, that's what we need to do for weight maintenance. We need to get people to think explicitly about not just that I've been coming every day and then one day there's no more contact, but to get me ready to be independent.
0: You think of weight loss as, like, those before and after pictures that you see in like a magazine right mm-hmm. like someone's very obese and then like there's a picture and they're like in a size two and they're so happy but like there's no after after right right and yes. the reality is that like you creep back towards that before yes, yes. unless That's you correct. do some of the things that that you talked about and you've developed a, a bunch of interventions around this and sort of talk about like how the how these studies work like what what exactly are you doing
1: yeah, so um, in the studies, I'm trying to think about the the different behavioral skills people need to be successful. So not just focusing on one, but kind of putting them together as a package, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think social support is certainly one of those things. We're getting people to elicit support that they need. Um, it's kind of the monitoring part that I talked about, I think that's important. The other thing that's important is um, what we call relapse prevention planning, and there have been a lot of studies that looked at that just by itself as a strategy, but again, You know, you get modest effects from that, but I'm hoping that we can take a bunch of different skills that have been shown by themselves to work okay and put them together as a package. And I think, you know, most importantly is not just trying to put these in a package, but to put it in a package that can be disseminated widely and not require people to come to really frequent in-person sessions because people might be motivated and able to do that for a few months, but if you ask them to do that for the rest of their lives, which is, you know, they might need intervention for the rest of their lives, they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so again, how can we train them to be independent, but also how can we follow them up in a way so they're they're going to receive ongoing contact, but maybe not as frequent and not as burdensome.
0: It's, it's sort of tapered, right? Like yes. you start with very frequent interventions with phone calls and group-based classes that people attend, and then it sort of goes from weekly to every other week to monthly or yeah, it tapering starts out, off. Yeah,
1: every two weeks to monthly to every two weeks. And so, again, the idea being like initially we're going to train you in these skills that we think are important for maintenance and you need some frequent practice and you need feedback on those as you, you know, try them out and see how they work for you. But eventually you should get more skilled with it and so we'll call you less frequently because you should be coming, you know, better at it and so you might need some infrequent check-in, you know, just to get a little booster and uh, help problem-solve with someone. But again, we're trying to train people to be able to carry these skills out independently.
0: I was really struck in your talk. You talk about how when you actually look at, at this panel of patients that you got, people who had lost weight and then, you know, they'd lost enough weight that they could be measured regaining it. And they reported their calories and the but you know the people who were in the intervention versus not there was like no difference in their self-reported calories there was no difference in their self-reported activity but there was a difference in their weight regain so so even though you couldn't actually measure what it was that they were doing differently, something was different
1: that's right and I think this is a common problem we run into with weight loss studies self-reported outcomes of behavior um, you know, there are people who are spending their entire careers trying to figure out better ways to do that. Um, and I think there are a lot of challenges with it just cognitively. You know, people are very busy every day, and so getting them to remember everything. You know, you and I probably can't right. remember what we ate for dinner last night. So
0: Did I have dinner? Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so how do we expect patients to do that? You know, and they're trying to come up with better ways. And so, um, you know, I think we know that those measures aren't really – super um, accurate, but I think they can often be used to detect um, differences between groups. I think one of the challenges in this trial is that in the maintenance period, we allowed people to focus on whatever behavior they wanted to, and so when I listened to the intervention calls, some people were focusing on dietary stuff, and some were focusing on physical activity, and some people were doing both, mm-hmm. and it kind of might might have gotten washed out you know, in the measures as well. That's another possible interpretation of it.
0: But you have a nice outcome, which is that people yeah. don't, you know, that's a nice objective thing. Put them on a scale and you know that, Absolutely. It, that this is working, even if you can't point to the specific element of weight loss that it's changing, whether it's the exercise or the eating or, you know, how it works. It reminds me a lot of bundles that we have in medicine, right? So we have introduced these various bundles where you do 15 different things and you, you never really know which ones are affecting things. And if, But you know that if you start taking things out, it stops working. Like there's some sort of synergy that goes on, you know, in, in a black box, and it's less important that you understand exactly what's happening mechanistically within that box, and more important that, like, what's coming on on the other side is the the outcome you you're after.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. We look for the outcome, and if you see a difference in outcome, maybe you can start kind of dismantling it and figuring out what causes that. But you know, should you start out going step by step, and maybe never getting to the place where you affect the outcome, so you can take either approach yeah
0: (laughs) and your next steps it sounds like super exciting you're you're now working within the VA system and there I was stunned to see the 780,000 patients in the VA who are morbidly obese
1: yes it is stunning actually we had a statistic that Luke had gotten when he wrote up his CDA where we thought there were about 300,000 and this publication just came out this year using medical record data yeah. showing 780,000. It's I mean, astounding.
0: How many patients are there in the VA system? This is like a a, a pretty good percentage of,
1: it is a good of, percentage. VA, of um, VA patients. I'm trying to remember the exact number, but I mean, this was, you know, this is about 15 or 16% yeah. of the patients. So
0: Amazing. Despite that, the VA does, you know, on their 780,000 obese patients, they do 450 bariatric surgery operations a year it's like taking its time getting started as a modality for weight loss in the in the VA lagging a bit what's happening in in the community and those patients have the same problem right like they bariatric patients bariatric surgery patients you know have dramatic weight loss immediately after surgery mm-hmm. and then they start regaining and so your your next step is is looking at at that population
1: yes and actually it's interesting cuz in you know we've people in the VA have evaluated outcomes of bariatric surgery patients. They actually seem to be a little bit better than in the community, Mm. but there's a lot of, because there are so few patients who get the surgery, there's a real selection process going on. So I've heard, you know, one of the surgeons say that he, he gets to cherry pick his patients, Mm -hmm. you know, so they, they have a lot of requirements for them to even get to the point where they can get surgery. And so they're they're a pretty selective bunch. And so they they tend to do a little bit better than in the community where you can just get it if you pay for it. Right. Um, But nonetheless, you know, when you talk to the patients, when you talk to the surgeons, they certainly feel that regain is an issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if you're getting to pick the 1 in 2,000 patients who qualify for bariatric surgery, like, so it's it's probably a great study, population to study, right? Maybe they're a little bit more motivated. They're a little bit more willing to engage in these, you know, um, durability studies. We hope so, yeah. yeah. Very cool. And what's sort of the timeline for that? Like, how how long till we, we see how this is working in that population?
1: Too long, unfortunately. It takes <laughs> <laughs> so long to apply for funding and do these studies. But our, our goal is to apply for a fully powered efficacy study um, in June. And then, you know, by the time that gets conducted, we're talking five years down the line, okay. unfortunately. but. I think, you know, even though we're waiting for results, I think, you know, when you conduct these studies and you listen to the calls with patients, you certainly feel and you know that some patients are getting a benefit from it mm-hmm. so that even, you know, while you're waiting for the results, it's, you get a lot of feedback along the way and get very excited when you hear, you know, a patient just saying how important these calls are and how good the dietitian is and working with them and you hear them making changes. And so that's really rewarding.
0: Yeah, hopefully that. In five years, if not before, then we can use that data to make the case. And you say that, like, what we really need to do is we need to start paying for behavioral interventions and not just medical interventions. Because this intervention that you did cost three hundred and fifty dollars to, you know, per patient to to implement and is providing this durable benefit that we haven't figured out a way to do before.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. I think absolutely we need to figure out a way for to pay for this treatment. I think if we we could make the business case for it and kind of calculate the long term what is the cost of you know being obese we know that and regaining weight and then what if you you know had a a really good interventionist who's not too expensive deliver intervention to prevent that weight gain i think you know the the case is probably there to be made
0: it doesn't take much medical intervention to to meet that threshold of what your your interventions have cost yeah
1: Yeah, and there are there are people who can be specially trained to do these things we don't need physicians we don't um, you know, nurses certainly can do the sorts of things, but we don't have to have the most expensive interventionists. We should save you all for, you know, the the surgeries and the other things, the medical interventions.
0: This holistic approach that, you know, you sort of know in your core matters, you know, and it's yeah. it's really cool to be seeing the numbers put to it and, and making the case. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Definitely, uh, if you're listening to this, you should check, check out Dr. Boyle's talk. Uh, on the website, and it'll be linked off the podcast page, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time on The Surgery Set, we've got a very special heavy hitters episode. I'll be talking to doctors Heather Logie and Susan Pitt, among the biggest names in the women in surgery movement. Heather Logie, who got her undergrad degree here at UW, started the I Look Like a Surgeon hashtag in 2015. And one year ago, our own Susan Pitt was inspired by a New Yorker cover photo to create a showcase of photos of women in the operating room, photos that have become viral sensations celebrating women surgeons across the globe. We discuss how the I Look Like a Surgeon and New Yorker OR Cover Challenge movements grew online and continue to reach tens of millions of people on social media. This one is unmissable. See you there. <laughs> The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth Novella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. <speaking in foreign language>